I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show and podcast where readers meet writers. It's good to have you listening. If you could choose one thing, one single item that holds a most powerful memory, what would it be? I might choose our late German Shepherd's collar or a cherished ring that my grandma Miller gave me, or maybe my Norton anthology of literature from college. In a new novel co-written by H's for Hawk memoirist Helen McDonald and writer-musician Sin Blaché, a top-secret substance developed by a government turns memories into objects, only to see those objects used against the person who possessed the memory. As one investigator declares, a lot of people need answers. The novel is titled Profit, and Helen McDonald joins us from Suffolk, England. Helen, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. It's so great to be here. And Sin Blaché joins us from Northwest Ireland. Sin, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you. Thank you so much. I'm having fun being here. It's my first like real radio, so. <laughs> really? All right. Yeah. Welcome. We'll make it fun. Um, Helen, since you're a memoirist, which means you're in the business of examining memory and all of its dimension and mystery, I'm going to go to you for this first. What would your object be? Oh, no. You know, it's funny, writing this book, I, n I never thought that would be something that I'd be asked. And of course, it's the first question. I actually have the objects in my kitchen on the windowsill. There are two plastic dinosaurs that I've had since I was about seven that I got from the Natural History Museum. Uh, there's a Tyrannosaurus rex in kind of muddy brown and uh, a Triceratops in a sort of even muddier brown and I adore them one of them's got a chipped tail but they really do represent a kind of safety and past self that I, I cherish them greatly yeah they're my objects Helen what's the predominant memory of the day that one or both of those objects came into your life well, it was really fun. My my mother and father uh, used to go to London quite often at the weekends, and they would drop me off as a very small child at the Natural History Museum and just leave me there. You know, I think they'd probably be arrested now if they did that. <laughs> and I'd wander around the galleries, and I was, you know, this geeky small child, and I'd learned all the names of the animals, and I spent some time in the shop, and I just knew I wanted these creatures, and I saved up my pocket money. And I went in and bought the Tyrannosaurus first because, of course, I did. And then I realized it needed something to eat. So I bought the Triceratops to go with it. And I just, <laughs> I remember the, the sort of crunchy plastic, the crunchy paper bag they came in and just the joy of getting them out and setting them on my, on my bookshelf. Um, yeah, really vivid memories. Really, really vivid. You know, what's interesting about what you just described is I think you said those animals, those plastic animals also represent safety. And it's mm. interesting to hear you say, my parents would drop me off and I'd wander by myself through this, you know, this huge museum. Yeah, I, I became quite proprietorial about it, in fact. It felt an incredibly safe space. It was all about animals and it was about knowledge. And I just assumed that everyone there felt the same about everything that I did, which is probably misguided. Um, they just wanted a day out. Um, and, um, you know, years later when the government brought in um, fees to enter these museums. They were always free when I was a kid. I was outraged. You know, I used, to, I think I once tried to sneak past. I was, I was so desperately sort of believe of that sort of, you know, I had sort of believed that it, it belonged to me. So that was, it was a safe space. Like my home was a safe space, that museum to me then. 
So, Sen, I'm curious about when you and Helen were collaborating on the novel together, and we'll talk a little bit about what shape that took, but were you having conversations about your memory objects and why particular objects trigger memories and are so, in Helen's case, so comforting? Were you talking about that? We talked a lot about objects, but mainly about uh, how certain objects connect to popular culture and how popular culture then connect to people. And so this is the line that we followed through, like every single conversation that we had about nostalgia, about things that we connect to and why we connect to them. So that was like the main thing. I don't think that we, we focus too hard on the objects. We ask people different questions about, like you asked Helen about the, the thing that they would choose, but then we would try to figure out why that was the answer that they gave. Yeah, we had a really interesting moment. We sneaked onto Twitter and we asked, uh, well, I asked a question, if you could retrieve one object from your past that represented kind of emotional power and safety, what would it be? And that, you know, I couldn't mm-hmm. believe the number of replies, you know, everything from, you know, grandma's button boxes to, you know, um, soft toys to sports memorabilia. There were a couple of guys who said my old girlfriend, which was a bit grim considering that we said <laughs> objects, but um, it was, I think that so, was the first time, the first time I really thought, and I think Sin, Sin thought too, that there's something really huge going on here. This this notion of lost objects that, you know, people desperately wish they could they could retrieve. And we talked a lot about that. You know, that, that is interesting, Helen, because when I thought about this, I and I I listed some of those items in the introduction. I have those. I would not, you know, for all the moves and all the the different places that I've been, I've hung on to those things. What I think you were hearing from people on Twitter is, you know, a mourning in some ways for not being able to hold on to those things, which is even more powerful, isn't it? It's true. It was a a total mourning. People were talking about trees from their street that are now gone. They were um, Mm. a lot like the collar that you brought up. There was a lot of pets. There was a lot of, Mm -hmm. um, I think one person talked about the feeling of holding their grandmother's hand. And like, it really was lost things, lost feelings, lost moments. And uh, and that's really the core of nostalgia anyway. It's not the things that we get to hold on to, but the, the feeling within those things that we've lost. I'm intrigued that you've been using the word nostalgia because for whatever reason, I'm having more frequent conversations with writers about the idea of nostalgia. I, I was talking to Jeanette Walls about her new novel, which is a historical novel. um, And it brings in themes of nationalism and racism of the prohibition. And we were talking about that. And she said, you know, here's the cure for nostalgia, that sentimentality for the past comes from distortion and misunderstanding, that nostalgia is really a misunderstanding of the past. What do you think? I think there's certainly a lot of merit to that. I think that what we consider as nostalgia is this uh, this grasping of a memory that we, we're never going to get right. We're thinking back to times when we were children, when we were in college, when we weren't really paying attention to a lot of what was happening, but we felt safe. 
So um, when things like uh, nationalism or racism, they hearken to these nostalgic times, that's what they're banking on. They're hoping that you don't actually remember or um, you weren't even alive to remember, that kind of thing. That's what cultural nostalgia is. It's the idea of a memory of a time. And oftentimes mm. that's just incorrect. Oh, that's such a great description. I mean, you're a musician. You must, you must think about how to, how to form that into music or the writing that you're doing without in some ways puncturing the comfort that that kind of nostalgia comes with, right? I mean, that's why we're accessing it, yes? Yeah, I think that it's, like, I mean, we're talking about the the dark underbelly of nostalgia, right? But, like, mm-hmm. um, and as much as I am a musician, I mean, I'm a, I'm a hobbyist. I, I play music with my family. I have done all my life. But um, a lot of the time when you think about positive nostalgia, it always comes down to music or smells or... Uh, things that we can't hold on to, but we can get back to. That's what you can do with music. That's what you can do with food. Um, the dark underbelly of nostalgia is the things that you can't get to, the things that we've lost. They're gone. And that's why we keep on reaching out. Yeah, there's a, interestingly, you know, I always think I was reading a wonderful book uh, about nostalgia by Slet, uh, Sletnana Boim, I think. Sorry, my brain is is corroding with age. But um, she talks about how the problem with nostalgia is that there's a kind of yearning for a lost home. Um, and that home has been kind of shrunk really in the 20th century into childhood. And therefore kind of things like toys feature pretty highly on the list of things we miss. But the, the yearning for a home isn't necessarily a dark thing. You know, you can, you can do that and live in uncertainty and, and wonder at, at, at time passing. The darkness comes when you want to build a home again and exclude other people from it, right? It's a bit like the call, the whole kind of, you know, you know, we've had it with Brexit, we had it in America with Trump, this notion that there is a golden age we can get back to. And, you know, not everyone gets to be uh, a citizen of that golden age home that people want. So there's a, there is a huge amount of darkness inside the ways that nostalgia is being used. And uh, we wanted to recognize that in our book as well as the joy of it. Helen, give me a sense of, uh, as Sin was describing, what the conversations of the idea of memory being uh, turned into objects and then all the places that they went. I I, kind of want you to put me in the room um, about what those discussions sounded like. What kinds of questions were you both raising and trying to answer? It's funny, you know, we, we kind of, that was one of the easiest parts of the book. We, we both kind of knew really early on that we wanted to play with a notion of a, a sort of spooky, eerie substance that would <laughs> create these lost memories. And some of that comes from a wonderful book by the New Yorker writer, Catherine Schultz, called Lost and Found. It's a beautiful, beautiful oh, memoir. Yeah. And oh, it, it, it talks about, it is. yeah, it's really lovely. And she talks about the Valley of Lost Things, which is a literary conceit um, that goes right back. You know, um, it's been used in many, many different places, you know, epic poetry and children's books, where there's a place where all the lost things go. And you, if you have a guide, you can go visit them. You can, you know, Mary Poppins takes children to the moon to, to find these piles of coats and buttons. And I think that was very early on a sense that, you know, we wanted to 
play with that notion of being able to find these objects again and how that could be very dangerous. It would stop you in your tracks. You know, lots of um, first generation immigrant families, you know, I've heard a lot of writing about how quite often they'll refuse nostalgia completely because it's dangerous. You don't want to look back. You don't want mm-hmm. to get sort of stuck to your objects. So we talked a lot about that. And Sin, you were playing this really amazing video game called Control. Do you want to yeah, I was I was playing Control by uh, Remedy Entertainment, and um, essentially they talked about uh, the idea that objects, um, everyday objects, hold like beliefs and um, memories themselves, and the things that we uh, attribute to things like uh, phones or refrigerators and stuff like that, and how that can pull in a kind of power to themselves and then that would be able to exert onto other people. And I was, um, you know, it was lockdown. I was, I was only playing video games. I was only really watching TV. And so when we were in the (laughs) middle of these um, conversations about nostalgia and, um, and what that means for people in everyday life, I was also ranting and raving to Helen about this video game. <laughs> so we ended up uh, really holding on to this object yeah. idea. Yeah. And the other thing that that moment in, in, in the book, when people get exposed to this subject, and it, it spurs this sudden emotional moment that creates this object, you know, we, we were thinking about, you know, on, say, on Facebook or on social media, where you know, there's a sort of engagement bait. You know, you'll put up a, a photograph of a mm. of a 1980s mm-hmm. cho- chocolate bar, and that when you see mm-hmm. it, you feel that flood of emotion. You know, and you want to click the you want to click like. And that seemed to me the sort of, and I think sin to that sense that you know that click that moment of wanting to engage with that memory and get lost in it was the dangerous moment when this substance works on people in our book. So it was a really fun sort of. Um, conceit to play with. It was really scary, mm-hmm. and we we took it to some really scary places as well. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> you did. Sin, what would your object be? That's a tough one, to be honest. I've been giving different answers um, every single time that I'm asked this, and I think that I'll continue to do so. I uh, <laughs> I moved around a lot when I was a kid, and uh, and this made it difficult to either hold on to toys they got lost along the way, or um, you know, I have memories of places and people, but uh, objects are, are difficult, you know. So I would say that today, uh, today's object would be mm-hmm. um, before we left L.A., my parents brought me to build a bear and I got to build my own bear. And uh, it was fine. She was just a normal brown teddy bear. Uh, but I got to have like different outfits for her. And I think that the thing that I remember most about that bear was her name was Sheila for some reason. Um, I had just decided <laughs> that that was what she was going to be called. It baffled my mother. Uh-huh. We knew nobody called Sheila. I had never heard the name before. And um, I, I got to have a like a t-shirt um, pajama dress that I mm-hmm. also got to have, so we matched. And oh. uh, and that was huge for me because I got to bring that from L.A. to Ireland when we moved. Hmm. Do you know what happened to Sheila? I think she's around somewhere. I, uh, <laughs> really? I, I, think she, I think so. I think that she's, um, she's stuffed in a box somewhere in my folks' place, I think. Um, yeah. I think that that's one of those things that probably uh, my 
my niece uh, might have picked up at some stage and said, "Can I have this?" And I like freakishly said no, but um, <laughs> and then and stuffed her back into a box. You know, this is how yeah. these things go. That's so funny. Nobody can have Sheila. Yeah, <laughs> she's mine. <laughs> Um, it, let me remind listeners, if, if you've tuned in <laughs> to Big Books and Bold Ideas, uh, I'm in conversation with Helen McDonald and Sin Blaché. They've collaborated on this really cool novel called Profit. And the idea at the center of it is there's this top secret substance that's been developed by a government that turns memories into objects. Um, and then only to see those objects are used in some way against the person who possessed the memory. And there's so much more to it uh, than that. But the novel is called Profit. And we're talking about, we've kind of started our conversation talking about what those, why those objects hold powerful memories and what those objects would be for us. Helen, I just, I need to say this. I thought this was interesting because now Sin has described something that I would regard as a really, you know, as an unimportant object memento from a, from a childhood. But so many of these are really mundane items yeah. that you've put into, yeah. the, into the novel. They're not the precious from Lord of the Rings. I mean, <laughs> you know, you could see some of these objects just strewn on the side of the road and never think twice about it. Why? You know, it's just, you know, I, I like to think, and this is going to sound like I'm kind of blowing, you know, my own trumpet here and, and Sin's trumpet too, I guess. But it's a book about, it's a book about the human heart, you know, um, centrally, you know, we can maybe talk a bit about that later. But, you know, what 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 we find moving and what we find um, deeply, deeply emotionally full, sort of important to us, you know, even though despite the fact that kind of consumer culture is saying it has to be this, it has to be this, it has to be this. Sometimes it isn't that. Sometimes it is, you know, and, and you know, I keep thinking back on to the, these people keep saying, you know, kept saying when we asked them that they really, really missed their grandmother's button boxes. And this became mm -hmm. a real kind of lesson for me. You know, it's not, it's not the, the giant kind of like toy thing or that it's, it's the unregarded small domestic details that um, exist around when one's growing up that can really have that, have that weight. Um, but the books really have also, it's a, it's, you know, it's a bit of a sort of a uh, bit of cultural criticism, really. I mean, it's very satirical. So it does concentrate quite a lot more on the kinds of objects that were designed to be nostalgic um, as well mm -hmm. as those lovely mundane mm -hmm. ones that you pick up as you go along. Yeah. It, describe what you mean by the ones that were designed, because I, I think most of us have a radar for those objects. Yeah. What, what yeah. are you thinking of? Well, the collectibles, you know, and here I am going to go straight into sort of, you know, trademarks and, and, and names here, but things like Care Bears <laughs> and Polly Pockets mm. and, and um, you know, Beanie Babies. I mean, I remember my... G.I. You know, Joes. G.I. Yeah. Joes, yeah. So, you know, sort of these things that children are supposed to have and supposed to love and play with. And, you know, we're talking in the time of, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer, of course. And, you yeah, know, Sin and I have yeah. been laughing about that because, you know, we, we wrote a book that is basically Barbie meets Oppenheimer in a really deep way. You know, we've got bits <laughs> at the end where set oh in the nuclear... Oh, my gosh, that's true. Yeah. 
there's like a, you know at the end i mean i don't want to give away spoilers but there are scenes set in the you know the secret towns of the nuclear desert of the american southwest with animate toys running around so you know it really is the two of those meshed together yeah yeah you know sin um a minute ago helen was talking about how this is there's exploration here of the human heart. I, I found myself tugged between, they're saying some really interesting things about how, you two, about how memory works and how the brain, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that too, because I find that really mm. interesting. But but I, I felt tugged between, and what are they revealing about who, what, what we cherish? And, you know, what we take into our heart and what it says about us. W would you reflect on that for a minute? Well, I think, like, on top of all of the satirical things that we wanted to talk about regarding nostalgia and uh, national identity and everything else, I think also we really wanted to explore how memories and loss and trauma can, like, really shift who a person is or at least inform you about who a person is and how we never really think about those little traumas and losses and uh it's underneath the surface of everybody everybody has these stories mm -hmm. that not not everybody gets to see either you know and so that was a big thing that we wanted to touch upon it isn't just about things it's not just about you know shady government plots it's also about people and how they feel and how they think and what they hide and why they hide it so mm. yeah that was a big thing that we wanted to get into i don't know exactly if we could clearly give a message about what that means for people you know that's mm. uh an answer that i don't think anybody can really give <laughs> clearly but we yeah. did think about it we meditated on it a lot mm. Yeah, so so I think, you know, if, if you wanted to really, really broad brush stroke it, um, you know, and again, not wanting to give spoilers away, but, um, <laughs> you know, if, but it's very hard not to do a little bit of that. Mm. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, the book is, we can maybe talk a bit about how the book is, we, we pieced it together and built it with love from so many tropes from literature and movies and films and games and Let's you know and, and yeah yeah we can talk about that but um <laughs> which which was delightful but like you know nostalgia is always a backward a backward looking thing and you can get trapped mm -hmm. in it you can't be progressive if you're constantly trying to generate a past that never existed and and make it real in front of you it's an incredibly dangerous trap and you know one of the things that works against nostalgia is the you know, again, it's going to sound really kind of cheesy, but it's love, you know, like, you know, it's a very, very, you know, live in the moment. Um, it's forward looking, it's relational. It's not about, you know, um, possessing things. It's about the relationship between two people. And I think if there's an answer to, you know, trauma and an answer to nostalgia, I think the book really has quite a, a strong answer on that. And the answer is love. Yeah. Hmm. Did you two go in how do I want to ask this with, with these ideas of puncturing a lot of these tropes or, you know, making satire out of them, or did it develop as you realized together where the story was going and opportunity and doors were opening to that? How did that, how did that form? 
Mm. I think what we wanted to do was we wanted to write a book that we wanted to read. And, uh, and that's really the size of it. It's a really simple answer, but that's it. We were in, again, in the middle of the lockdowns, we were ingesting so much media and we just wanted to read what we wanted to read and it didn't exist. So we wrote it and that happened to be <laughs> spy stories and it happened to be this big crazy romance and it happened to be this, uh, this horror story about shady plots and nostalgia and that's what we wanted to do. But it did yeah. open doors as we were writing it. And because we were collaborating, we would realize things and get to present it to the other person and mm -hmm. get like these big revelations as the story was going. Um, it was really fun. It was interesting to go through it. It's not just one person working things yeah. out. It's two people presenting things to each other. Yeah, it was so much fun. I mean, I, I mean, I, I quite often used to sort of say, you know, this is so much fun writing this book. It feels almost illegal. You know, should I be doing this? <laughs> it's too much fun. <laughs> but I think, I think, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the, all the familiar parts of this book, the spy stuff, the horror stuff, the kind of born identity type action scenes, you know, <laughs> these, these is a lovely, a lovely phrase that I think the novelist Sarah Perry used about the, the beauty, the veracity and the power of tropes. And I think it's, mm. you know, if you look at it in mm. terms of, you know, what does it mean for a book about nostalgia to build it from tropes from TV and films and books that are, that are already in themselves kind of nostalgic things. So that we, we, we don't did that on purpose, but we, we love, you know, there's no, there's no snarkiness about it. You know, we loved, we loved right. to set a scene right. in a, in a, in a Bond style kind of ski lodge in Aspen, you know, that's fun. You know, we, we, <laughs> we, we, we have, we had a lot of joy doing this, you know, building this book from, from tropes and familiar things. And then also because we did, build it from familiar things I think it made the newness of the book and the kind of the angle of attack that we took in terms of its satire even sharper that's what we were trying to do anyway yeah you know what I felt like the experience of it was was decoding a code within a code and so <laughs> you know first I'm trying to decode the story and the, this infrastructure that you two have created but then when I would recognize, and I love spy novels, and I'm a big Bond fan, and I just saw Mission Impossible. And <laughs> so then when I would decode that part of the code, too, I felt like, well, let's just say I felt like another door opened into the inner sanctum of the story. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> a lovely thing to hear. Reading it. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, because we, you know, one thing we wanted to do was make this book you know, the, the book is written in, in the close third person. So basically everything mm -hmm. that we get, apart from some phone calls, which we, which we sort of listen into, are in the heads of our, our two main characters. We, we never really get outside their heads. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the explanations have to be found by the reader. And we, we really didn't want to talk down to readers. I Both Sin and yeah. I have an allergy, I think, to authors kind of, you know, telling you things you already know. Yeah, so, I come out so, in hives. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and I, I, I remember just thinking, you know, read, readers are really smart, you know, and we're not going to talk down to them. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this book that you have to piece together. Um, right. As you read it. And it's kind of like a puzzle. And we really, really wanted that. We wanted it to be a puzzle as well as a, a story. Mm -hmm. Sin, do you feel like you read a lot of 
a lot of writing that is, um, I don't know, I don't, talking down to the, just um, as you know, you know, that kind of tone, because you just said you come out in hives. I do, I come out in hives. Well, I think it's not so much that um, people talk down to their readers or even their watchers. I think that we're all in this awful cycle of um, producing things that are formulaic. And that feels Mm. like it's talking down to people. It's not necessarily that, you know, anybody thinks that anybody's stupid or that people write, you know, obvious things. It's just that we're told time and time again from like network executives or, um, you know, whoever else that's in charge of things, they're saying that, you know, you have to do it one way or else nobody will care. Mm -hmm. And that produces these formulas that we can't get away from. And that means that we know how every single story is going to go. And that makes things feel like they're talking down to people. We've seen it all before. Of course we know. That's so infuriating, too, because I feel like as a as a receptor consumer, I guess, of of that culture, I want more and I try to demonstrate mm-hmm. that I want more and different. And the the blankness of the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of the decision making machine is infuriating. Yeah. yeah. So we wrote a book. Yeah. So we wrote a book about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. You did. Yeah. The the nameless, faceless government entity. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> With a big baddie and everything. Yeah. It's really playful. Right. And, and you know, that. Uh, but but the book, you know, it's got darknesses in it, too. So like not just the horror stuff, mm-hmm. but, you know, we were both very clear, very, you know, early on, we realized that we would set it during, you know, the quote war on terror, unquote. And, you know, one of our mm-hmm. characters has a really rough time in Afghanistan and you know, we spoke right. to people who'd been in the military and we, you know, I, I did a lot of research and, you know, um, on the dreadful things that were happening and, you know, CIA black sites. And, and, you know, so there's a lot of dark in there as well as, as well as fun and banter. And, um, and it was quite funny, actually, one of the things that it was really delightful about the research was because I'm a historian, I would, I would just go into these, you know, fugues where I'd need to deep dive for like three weeks into kind of, you know, military message boards. <laughs> and Sin is sitting there just going, Sin's going, it's fiction, Helen. We can just do what you want. Yeah, you can, you can kind of just make stuff up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, break away. Y- you I know, know. Sin, have you ever read the, uh, the Tim O'Brien novel, The Things They Carried? He's from Minnesota, so... A lot of us have have read that novel. No, I haven't. I haven't read that. Well, as I as I thought about the the military element of this, and and again the objects. I mean, that is both a obviously that's both a pretty literal um, clue into the story, but also not literal at all. And I, I think you'd find some interesting parallels, I guess between Excellent. what you two were thinking on the, about. On the list. Yeah. Yeah, thank yeah, you. I love thank the you. Okay. Ellen, you've... Uh, no, Ellen, I haven't read it either. Read it either. I'm, yeah. I'm, terribly, I'm terribly badly read. People just assume, you know, I really... I don't believe to... that. Thank don't you. believe it. Thank you. No. Don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Sin, what were you doing while Helen was tumbling down the historian rabbit hole? Were you like, uh, well, I've got to press on here and keep writing, so. 
Well, that's kind of the joy of uh, both of us writing the same book, right? Is that if one person is uh, in a research deep dive or maybe just having a little bit of a block or whatever else, then the other person is writing um, or at least uh, trying to build towards um, a full plot or a scene or anything else that we were aiming towards. So uh, what I did a lot of the time uh we like to joke that I was, you know, the one that was doing the dialogue and Helen was doing the atmosphere. It did end up that eventually by the end, we were both able to do both things, but, um, (laughs) my, my American dialogue, my American dialogue is terrible. Sin like would tease me and say, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not Jane Austen, Helen. This is not how Americans talk. (laughs) Yeah. But a lot of the time I would be um, providing what we eventually started calling pezzes because they were just little, little nuggets Mm. of dialogue. And I would, I would push out these little pezzes of dialogue and we'd find these things that would work or that we liked and uh, build scenes or moments around them. Sin, that is great. I had a pass. <laughs> one of one of the joys of um, us both writing both of our main characters, mm-hmm. um, although Sin was better at Adam than I was, and I was, you know, I really enjoyed writing Rao. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I think it's the sense that even though we both knew these people very, very well, and we got to know them even better as we wrote, there was always a sort of there's always a gap between our understandings of those two characters, you know, that my row is not quite the same as sin's row and my Adam is not quite the same as, as sin's Adam. And there's something magical that happens when you're writing together, writing characters that you both have slightly different takes on. It's like the complexity of that difference seems to make them come alive in a way that's really exciting. They, they seem to sort of contain within them that complexity of a real person. And I think, you know, I've never written fiction before and sin has, but this this notion that as we wrote these people became more and more insistently alive and you know annoying and 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 real and delightful was was absolutely extraordinary to me it was it was one of the my favorite things about this whole project you know i think we ought to do, hear the excerpt but first i i want to make sure that <clears throat> our listeners are familiar or aware with the relationship between this two how it begins so sin maybe you could describe um, who Adam and Rao are as we as we meet them, and then a little bit about where it goes, and then we'll hear right. the excerpt. Yeah. <laughs> so as we know them in uh, at the start of the novel, uh, Rao is uh, an ex uh, intelligence um, asset for uh, MI six, and. Um, he has a an ability to be able to tell the truth of things, um, whether that be objects or statements. And this uh, means that he's often an asset in uh, operations around the world. And Adam, Lieutenant Colonel Adam Rubenstein, meets him initially uh, as a babysitter to make sure that he is protected and he does what he's supposed to do when they're working. They eventually um, develop a... A partnership together that means that uh, you know Adam understands him. Rao can work with Adam, and uh, they get along fine. But there is a complicated uh, relationship there underneath because Adam does uh, eventually develop feelings for Rao. Mm. So uh, the only problem is with that, of course, is that there is something 
going on with Adam that uh, Rao can't tell the truth with him. He can't tell if he's lying or telling the truth or anything else. The one person in his life, right? Yeah, we, we completely were laughing about how much that's like Twilight. We, 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 we were laughing so hard because these characters are not like the characters in Twilight. Um, it's just another trope, right? <laughs> it's, another yeah, trope. it's another trope. So, um, yeah, and, and, and Rao really is a mess. I mean, he's, he's an addict. He's, um, you know, he's, you know, all over the place, a complete disaster. And Adam is like the most kind of repressed, straight-laced, <laughs> um, terrifyingly efficient person that the world has ever known. I mean, basically, it's, it's, it's an odd couple. It's an odd couple for the ages. That's what we hope. Um, I mean, what's interesting about this, their... Initially, their relationship looks like almost a parent and acting out child mm. relationship. Yeah. It evolves quickly, but it travels some distance to where they end up from a place I guess I didn't expect. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think that there's a complexity uh within a lot of different relationships and a lot of different scenarios that we tend to overlook if it doesn't look like a meet cute or whatever mm -hmm. else, you know, we, mm -hmm. we can develop these um, deeper relationships with people um, from a different place from sometimes an antagonistic place. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that, you know, uh, Rao will always embody this kind of childish acting out, place i mean that has nothing to do with adam adam just happens to be around <laughs> and um and that does affect their relationship initially and um in every sense i think mm. but uh i i liked what we did how we made that um layered relationship with them it's not just about oh he doesn't know that i like him oh no right it's yeah. it's really about them working together and getting to know each other on their own terms and not in the terms of say a romantic story. So you knew, you knew where this relationship was headed when you began or no? Yeah. yeah we always set out to write uh, a queer love story from the start. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's so few positive queer love stories. In mainstream fiction. Yeah. 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 And, and we, you know, I just, we, we were just, you just, thought it would be really beautiful to do that because um, it's such a it's such a romance it's like a I mean the romance is really the beating heart of the book and um, you know what this substance does to our main characters um, is really complicated but deep down its effects relate to free will um, you know how much power does one have um, it's about creativity and about love and trauma and I you know the, you know we worked out we worked quite carefully on what this substance is and what it does but in its real effects i think in the book um the most important effects are, are on our main characters yeah i think it's really also about male friendship but and i want to talk to you a little bit about that on the other side of the excerpt but let's since we've been yeah. teasing it here for a bit um tell us a little <laughs> bit let's do if, it if you will tell us a little <laughs> bit about where we are in the story and then let's go well, uh, basically, they're in um, they're in Colorado. Um, they visited a secret medical facility because, of course, you know, um, Adam, for complex reasons, has been exposed to profit and has created an object. And 
Rao somehow saves him. Like we can't really talk about why you have to read the book, but basically um, <laughs> they are, they have returned to a motel, which Sin and I call the recoup, the recoup hotel. <laughs> and um, Adam has finally fallen asleep. Um, and Rao wakes to hear screaming and he thinks he's having a nightmare, but in fact, the screaming isn't coming from his own mouth. It's coming from Adam. So this is what happens in the motel in the way of so many romance novels, but this is what happens next. Don't worry that nothing dubious happens here. It's okay. (laughs) All right. right. Here we go. Adam. What wakes him isn't the tearing in his throat, the sound of his own shouts dying in his chest. It's Rao shaking him, Rao saying his name. Adam blinks up at his face. The room's too hot. He's shivering, so is Rao. Are you all right, love? Stupid question. Adam screws his eyes shut. He must take too long to answer because he hears a tap running, then Rao's feet on the carpet. Obviously you're not all right, but, I mean, are you all right? He clarifies, badly. Adam cracks an eye to look at him. He's holding out a glass of water. He looks shaken, worried. Rao almost never lets it show like this, panicked and wide-eyed as he puts the glass on the bedside table. I'm fine, Adam lies. Rao sits beside him on the bed. Is that one of those I'm fines where you're not fine at all? Once, not being able to read truth in Adam's words would have freaked Rao out. Lately, he's getting better at figuring him out on his own. Adam gives up on his lie. Yes. Is there anything I can do? So much. He could do so much to help. He could leave, but Adam doesn't think that would actually help. Wanting him to is instinct, some deep wound in Adam's gut crying out for quiet and safety. Rao's never embodied safety, not to anyone, including himself. But if he left, Adam would feel worse. And if he stays, then Adam will feel... Doesn't matter. I don't know, he answers, non-committal, another lie. Scoot over then. Adam acquiesces, giving Rao enough space to get properly into the bed. He stretches out, makes himself comfortable, turns to face Adam. Streetlights outside, everything is blue and orange. Rao can't have any idea what his face looks like in the half-darkness. Rao's staying, and that seems better than him leaving, but Adam's skin aches like a bruise. What was the nightmare? Aren't you supposed to ask if you can ask first? What kind of rule is that? Adam sniffs. One that allows me to run interference. Very funny. You don't have to tell me... No, I'm just being a dick, Adam sighs, trying to distract Rao crying out for quiet and safety, maybe just one of those. Would you believe me if I told you that I don't remember? Wouldn't have any choice in the matter, love. I'd have to believe you. Not the first time you've said that. Not the first time it's been true. Rao's voice sounds deeper when he's being serious. It's different from his regular lilting sarcasm, a distant relative of the biting tone his insults are laced with. Nightmare sweat is cooling in the small of Adam's back, and it's making it very difficult for him to figure out if he likes Rao's serious voice or not. He might hate it. He feels strongly about it. He knows he does because he keeps replaying what Rao just said, turning it over and over in his mind. Maybe he just wants to get away from Rao's voice on repeat in his head. Maybe he doesn't remember the details of the nightmare, but he knows what it was about. He thinks for a while. 
Maybe he just wants Rao to know. Yeah, of all people, Rao. If anyone, Rao. I think you would have liked my aunt Sasha. Or she would have liked you, he begins slowly. It's strange to say your name out loud. Feels like it's been years. Maybe it has. She died when I was a teenager, but I always kind of thought. Silence. He stops, surprised. He has, hasn't he? Always thought, somehow knew, that Rao and Sasha would have gotten along like a house on fire. Thought what? Rao prompts, nudging Adam's shoulder with his own. He leans against him, doesn't move away. It's a tactic. Rao deploys charm to get what he wants, never intimidation. But it's a tactic Adam appreciates right now. He'll take it. I was supposed to go live with her, he says. Rao's question is still in the air between them, but it doesn't matter. Has anything ever mattered? We had this big plan to get me out of my dad's house. All I had to do was leave the house before six. Adam keeps his eyes open. The clock that Prophet pulled out of him floats in his vision whenever he blinks. He keeps his eyes open in the half-orange-blue light. She was waiting for me at the junction near my house, and I was supposed to meet her. We were supposed to get out of the state before my dad even noticed I was gone. I never found out where we were going to go. She was going to drive, or she got plane tickets or something. I didn't have to think about it. She had it all planned out. His eyes sting. Dry. He has to blink. Hates it. What happened? Rao asks quietly. There it is again, the serious drop, that illusion of depth in his voice. You can guess. I can? But I don't think that's the point, is it? No, Adam sighs. She waited for me for too long. Didn't see an oncoming truck. Truck driver wasn't expecting her to be parked where she was. The coroner called it for just a little after six. Rao doesn't say anything for a long time. Maybe it's not that long. Time doesn't always work the same way. Maybe it's just a single second stretched out forever in front of them, pulled out into the silent wishes that Rao could have met Sasha, the questions Adam can feel bubbling under Rao's skin, and into the other thing that can't ever be spoken. That's what I saw. That's what I made was me failing to leave and go live with my aunt. Not a model plane like it probably should have been. Not one of my knives like you predicted. Rao swallows, blinks in the half-light. Rao woke him and he must be exhausted, but he's going to have to just suck it up a little longer. He's always wanted Adam to talk more. Well, Rao says quietly, unexpectedly gentle. You know I'm a kinky bastard. I've always liked knives. Always like how they work, you know? People are very much themselves when they're wielding a knife. People are very much themselves when they're underneath the blade. Adam frowns. He's not following Rao's reasoning. You're talking about lies again, he concludes. I'm talking about truth, Rao counters, shaking his head. You made a moment like a knife. Oh. He knows what Rao's trying to say about him. It must have confirmed some theories. Rao exhales. It's almost a grunt. He's tired and he's frustrated. It's making him relax farther against Adam, press heavier against his side. What are you on about? Psychopathy. Ah, well that was, uh, you aren't though. I'm not not. Rao laughs softly. No, love, that's me. (laughs) 
Sinvache and Helen McDonald <clears throat> reading from their new novel, Prophet. You know, it is so great to hear this in both of your voices. Did you, so a lot of, uh, a lot of fiction writers will read out loud to themselves. I wondered if you read back and forth. Boy, did that sound, that sounds so no. natural in your voices. Well, well, no, because, you know, that, I mean, the, the way this novel was written, um, we hadn't actually met when we started writing this novel. We'd been Twitter friends for a decade. What? We talked, you know, but like <laughs> really? we hadn't, I know. So basically this is, the, you know, we talk about burying the lead here, you know. So basically no. we, we, um, we talked a lot during lockdown. We, you know, we started this book and we wrote the entire thing really through direct messages on social media and emails, um, and so we never really heard each other. We we just used to send text, really. And then it wasn't until really the last kind of couple of chapters or few chapters that we actually decided it was probably a good idea to actually meet um, <laughs> and finish the book together. So we hired this um, hilarious house in the in Northern Ireland in the in the sort of British, you know, part. And um, it was hilarious. It was kind of this something like one of those sort of Malibu beach home. <laughs> built on a budget um, with lots, because it was like freezing cold and stormy and there were kind of, you know, dying palm trees It was December in outside. Northern it Ireland. Just, <laughs> there were palm trees dying outside. And we just sat down and we, we, just, we just put the fire on. There was a coal fire and it was like 100 degrees in there. We were writing and then I'd go out and have naughty cigarettes because I'd, you know, and freeze myself to a kind of icicle and come back in. And we had the most fun finishing it off together because it turns out that even though it's possible to write a book, uh, via sort of messaging, um, it's it's really special being in the same room. So I guess I imagine that you two did this over Zoom or in really long calls with each other. I had no idea that there was there was kind of an isolation to how you were each developing this. How in the heck? How 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 does it? <laughs> how did it turn out so cohesive? I just can't even imagine it. <laughs> well, it's really fun, you know. I mean, there was lots of things I had to learn. I mean, Sin's work with written with before, with other people before, and I never mm. have. And you know, I, I had to sort of like you know work on my ego a bit because you know I'd, I'd write something and send it to Sin, and Sin would be like, "No, you know, this is you think maybe it would be better like this." And then yeah. this voice inside me is like, "What? <laughs> you know, what do you Does mean? She know who um, I am?" And then I'm, no, no, I know, and and I and then you know basically then the same thing would happen, I think, back, you know, the other way. So we had to kind of mm -hmm. learn to be gentle with each other and be vulnerable. And that was that was a really big deal to be able to do that. And we learned each other's strengths and we learned from each other. And by the end, like, honestly, I there's so much of the book now, I have no idea who wrote it. Mm, it it's yeah. seamless to us. It's complicated as well because we do have our own favorite parts of uh, different chapters and we get into fights now about who wrote it. You know, like, this is my favorite part. You wrote that. And then the other will come back. It's like, no, you wrote that. That's why it's that good. I, I don't call that a fight, Sin. <laughs> That's not really a fight. <laughs> it, it, gets, gets it gets quite vicious. It gets pretty heated, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sin, you've written with other people before. Is that is that right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you've emerged from those experiences saying, I really... I know how to do this. What is the thing you must understand about writing with someone else? Well, I think Helen alluded to it. You know, it's really about 
recognizing strengths and recognizing weaknesses is like really you have to know where you're weak. You have to know because when you're writing with someone else, they have to try to fill that space or uh, I don't know, um, hold it up. You have to be able to be willing to do that for the other person too. And I think that there's a lot of joy in doing that, this uh, give and take. Um, mm. We we would send things back and forth and uh, it was a lot like live editing. We, we were um, sending what we were writing to the other person. The other person would edit it and send it back and then we would rewrite that. And so that would mean that it was structured and scaffolded with both of our weaknesses and our strengths i just you know there was sort of a few times i remember vividly um sin would i'd wake up in the morning and discover there were you know a thousand words of dialogue and and suggestions in in my you know in in my social (laughs) messages and um and I'd be like, oh, where did this come from? And and then what would be delightful is quite often I'd get the, the raw dialogue and then I'd discuss it with Sin and then I'd sit down and then I would piece the scene around the dialogue. But then often it would happen the other way around too. So um, it was always fresh. I think that's that was something, you know, we never quite knew what was going to happen. We, we had a basic plot. We knew what was going to happen at the end. We had giant arguments over whether it was going to be a happy ending or a sad ending. I wanted a happy oh, ending. Sid, want, yeah. Sid wanted a really miserable ending. So we somehow managed to do both, um, which I think we was, was quite a coup. Um, and yeah, I mean, and, and then I would get very, very upset about um there's a a young character in this book that has a really hard time Mm -hmm. and i'd get like really emotional about this Mm -hmm. character and (laughs) sin would be like no let's let's make his life even even harder you know (laughs) so it was it was a very dynamic but the the thing i remember most about it is is the laughter it was there was just so much laughing um at just with just sheer joy at, at, at at creating this book out of two minds it was just brilliant Sin, why did you want a a dark ending? I, um, (laughs) (laughs) this is a lot about, um, has a lot to do with my uh, hives with uh, when it comes to formulaic things, you know? (laughs) Uh And so I, um, I tend to get really annoyed, actually, if I've put in so much emotional uh, work into characters and, then all I get is, and then they live happily ever after. I get really annoyed by that. I feel like it's a letdown. Um, <laughs> and so I, I know that it's, it's a personal failing. I, I understand. But, um, but I, I did want, uh, I wanted to have some weight. But, you know, Helen helped me figure out that, uh, you know, hurting people in stories doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good story mm-hmm. decision. <laughs> it just means that you've, hurt them so uh you know we, yeah, do, we no, learn we, and we, we grow <laughs> yeah no we do have a happy ending and it's a complicated happy ending but it's yes, a happy ending and and right. you know but all of the all of the darkness and trauma and you know it, it's we, we hope it lingers along with the well, joy because yes. you know this is meant to it's meant to be a romp but it's also fun you know this is like but also apart from the fun romp aspects you know it's 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 got some troubling troubling things you know to to maybe that will maybe linger in the mind after reading i i just want you two to know that no i hope nobody thinks that adam and rao live happily ever after they are together <laughs> but i'm very aware 
that they are headed <laughs> off into stormy days, right? Which is what it's going to keep. That's what will keep that relationship interesting. I think. Does that? <laughs> I agree. Well, to be honest. Yeah. No. I mean, they're not. They're not. They're not the most easy of, uh, of, of people to get to, <laughs> That's to right. be with. Um, either each other or with anyone else. But I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you know, sort of. I think Sin and I, you know, we both have other. You know, we know that not immediately, but at some point, we'd love to. I think we'd love to write more for these characters. Oh. They won't leave us oh, alone. Yay. Even now, we we Good. we think about how that. Yeah, yeah. They Good. they uh, they really have. They they hang around. That's good to know. Sin Helen McDonald, with us talking about their new novel, Profit. Thank you both very much. I I love the conversation. It's been so fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>